one of the greatest TV shows of all time. Twin Peaks is a cult classic famous for its central murder mystery, the twists and the bizarre plot lines. Yeah, now the cast is spilling all the secrets on stage in Australia. It was the 90s and Twin Peaks dominated. And joining us now is Kimmy Robertson, who played Lucy Moran, and Cheryl Lee, who played Laura Palmer. Good morning <laughs> to you, ladies. Welcome to Australia. Good morning. Good Cheryl, morning. you played Laura. Tell me about a, a conversation with the stars of the talk that you're doing. What's it like being in a room of people like Jesse, <laughs> who possibly, potentially know more minutiae <laughs> than you do about the show? Most of the fans uh, know more about my lines or what happened with my character. Do they treat you? Well, they just they're like they have. They're just really smart that way. <laughs> now you are in Australia next week for a series yeah. of Q and A events yeah. with fans. Uh, what can they expect? Uh, I don't know. You know, I haven't ever been down there for this kind of thing. So. I don't know what the fan base is like. I don't know how fervent they are. I don't. I can't wait to see. You know, um, I expect people to ask a bunch of questions like they always do about the show. You know, yeah. I so got a lot of mysteries in it that I have no answers to, but I like to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Twin Peaks conversations with the stars kicks off in Melbourne next Sunday. It features David Lynch via Skype. Tickets are on sale now. Welcome back to another episode of Twin Peaks: The Return, a season three podcast. My name is Andy Hazel, and that was the sound of Australia and New Zealand's breakfast television talking up a series of events, Conversations with the Stars, that finished here last month. That event saw Dana Ashbrook, Cheryl Lee, Kimmy Robertson, Michael Horse, Al Strobel and Sabrina Sutherland visit various cities in Australia and New Zealand to talk about Twin Peaks. So in addition to talking about my role as moderator for a couple of those events, I'm also going to share an interview with author Brad Dukes, who has one of the most interesting journeys through Twin Peaks from a fan to an author of one of the most respected books about the show, to a sceptic. But firstly, let's talk about the conversations with the stars. Um, so the cast and Sabrina uh, were brought out to Australia and New Zealand by the promotions agency DRW Entertainment. Um, and they asked me fairly early on if I was interested in hosting the Melbourne and Adelaide uh, events. Um, and I helped them source moderators for Brisbane, who with Jenny Valentish. And Lindsay McDougall, who did Sydney, and they found Zach Hepburn, who runs the amazing Astor Theatre here in Melbourne, to coordinate the Perth event. This was a really great honour, and it was also quite terrifying, because like you, I'm a fan, and I'm not really the sort of person who readily gets up on stage in front of over a thousand people, and is calm about it, you know, who can just talk with that sense of authority that uh, some other people seem to be able to do. People who've done that sort of thing a lot of times before, usually. But I wasn't going to turn down the chance for that, so I prepared as best I could and went out there uh, on on stage and talked for about 90 minutes to the cast and Sabrina and paused only really for David Lynch to Skype in and answer some questions from the audience. Um, we didn't get any scoop from David Lynch, unsurprisingly, although we did learn that he's a fan of sewing um, at the moment. Uh, he's, of course, doing a lot of painting and artwork as per usual. Um, and I did learn from Sabrina Sutherland that there are boxes of scripts and ideas and screenplays that go back to the early 80s that she is helping him organise. She didn't say that there was anything particular happening with uh, this work, but that it was very, very exciting and there was some really, really amazing stuff there. Uh, probably the most memorable and striking part of both events that I moderated were the discussions around Catherine Coulson. Each member of the cast expressed how much affection they had for her. 
there were some nice stories that came out. Uh, Michael Horse talked about um, how honoured he was to be able to be at the other side of those phone conversations that he shared with her in season three. Al Strobel talked about working with her in the late 1960s with Jack Nance on a production of Three Penny Opera. And Sabrina Sutherland in the Adelaide event broke down to quite good detail about the production uh, associated with shooting those scenes uh, for season three about how Catherine had been keeping her true sickness kind of a secret, not quite secret necessarily, but obviously felt uncomfortable talking about it. Uh, and so the realising that they needed to bring the production dates forward, the actual shooting, all this sort of stuff, it got quite emotional. And that felt like the movie I Knew Catherine uh, that's being made at the moment, the documentary, is going to be quite incredible. I mean, if I can just t- scrape the surface of some of these stories and get people so clearly engaged you know it was felt so nice to be able to feel like people were really reaching for their thoughts and their words because a lot of the stories that people wanted to hear and that I asked are about you know season one and season two and things that people would have talked about a lot of times before so to be able to get something sort of fresh and emotional like that was felt like a little victory of sorts I guess just before the Melbourne event I chatted to Al and he told me he was feeling really tired which made me think that he probably wouldn't be contributing very much to the conversations but it turned out the opposite was true he was really chatty he was very funny and very forthcoming did a brilliant version of the firewalk with me poem and of course his uh, as you I'm sure you know he had a minor heart attack after the Melbourne event I went and visited him in hospital and he was okay he was a bit annoyed and frustrated but he loves listening to NPR so he was doing that, and he seemed okay. And of course, he was well enough to drive himself a thousand kilometres a few days later to Sydney to do the Sydney leg of the Conversations events, which is, still seems to me to be completely amazing because a lot of people can't do that drive on a good day. So, besides uh, the information that was shared on Conversations events, with, at which there wasn't allowed to be any recording or filming, so I'm afraid I can't share any clips of that with you. Uh, I did learn a bit of gossip backstage in Adelaide which I wasn't allowed to share, which is a shame because uh, a few times there was some absolute gold was being shared um, off the record amongst the cast members and Sabrina would turn to me every so often and go, this is not to leave this room. And so I'm under an NDA from Sabrina, which I will observe and respect, of course. And part of you know withholding information is the great appeal of Twin Peaks anyway, so I'm sorry. But I will say, if you live outside Australia and you're planning an overseas trip in the first half of next year, do keep an eye on events in the Australian Twin Peaks fandom because there might be something worth catching. share something with you. Okay. A vision I had in my sleep last night. Well, when it came to preparing to moderate the conversations events, the book Reflections and Oral History of Twin Peaks by Brad Dukes was my guiding light. Reflections is a collection of quotes from cast, crew and executives at the television company ABC and expertly edited together to tell the story of the creation, production and impact of the first two seasons of Twin Peaks in a roughly chronological way. Brad's book was released in mid-2014, which was three months before the announcement of season three, and it became the perfect companion for a lot of people who wanted to reconnect with the original series. I've been wanting to interview Brad since I began this podcast, but um, for various reasons he was reluctant to open up um, in the way that I wanted him to. 
I met him at the Twin Peaks Festival in 2016 where he was one of the locations guides and he instantly struck me as one of the best informed and most engaged fans I'd ever met. Plus there were so many great anecdotes in Reflections that I hadn't come across before in all my years of enthusiasm. So I was really, really struck by his ability as an interviewer as well as an editor. As you'll hear, Brad's experience with Twin Peaks is totally unique and much of what he has to say about Season 3 isn't something he could have explored before now, which I think is part of his reticence to speak to me until today. So to properly get an insight into Brad's journey from fan to author to skeptic, I thought it was best to start right at the beginning. So I got into Twin Peaks when I was nine years old and it was just something I watched with my mom until, spoiler alert, Bob killed Maddie. And yeah, <laughs> I had to stop watching the show at that point. And so for many years, I would say like probably seven or eight years, I kind of lived with Twin Peaks unfinished in my head. And I knew that the show continued, but I think I built up a lot of the mystique in my own head for many years before I bought the series on VHS and watched it all over again. Right, So, you, but that's the point where the Bob is revealed. That's, like, that's the most crucial part of the story, isn't it? So you stopped watching as soon as you found out who killed Laura Palmer, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to stop watching, but my mom wouldn't let me watch it anymore. Right, okay. <laughs> so, you know, a big part of me just always wondered what else happened. So I think that kind of ingrained Twin Peaks in me. And then, of course, from there, the DVD releases really kind of jump-started my, my fandom. I, I bought a DVD player in 1998 because... I knew Twin Peaks was going to come out one day. <laughs> and, right, really? And okay. I never wanted to watch those awful VHS recordings again. Fair enough. So in that time, had you also followed discussions around it through Usenet forums and that sort of thing? No. I, I remember I got a computer in 1998, which is around the time I went back to Twin Peaks. And I did go on Usenet every now and then. And I remember some of those names now. It's really funny. I haven't thought about Usenet in forever, but yeah, I was on there in the late 90s. (laughs) Right, so that's kind of like pioneering examples of these sorts of discussions that we take for granted now around fandoms. Absolutely, and really in the late 90s, that was the only place in the world I could talk about Twin Peaks with anybody. I mean, (laughs) I didn't really know anything about festivals or wrapped in plastic magazines, so it was a very lonely fandom for me. (laughs) <laughs> right. So it's very much personal driven journey. Like, So you, did you get a copy of Full of Secrets or any of these sorts of critical and academic approaches that were being taken to Twin Peaks at the time? No, I, I just had Firewalk with me and the series on DVD, uh, on VHS. And it, it's so funny thinking back in the dark days of the internet, really, anyone could start a rumor about Twin Peaks coming back. And I remember some of the false alarms over the years and... I started following Dougpa.com in the early yeah, yeah. early 2000s, and and that really kind of started bringing me towards intense fandom, waiting for season two to come out on DVD. Right, and has, has this some um, sort of obsessive nature of yourself, has this been expressed in other things as well? Were you this into Star Wars or anything else? Mm-mm. Yeah, I'm a pretty big music fan. Like, I love the Beastie Boys, and the Weezer of the 1990s. Like I had obsessive fandoms with those two bands. So yeah, but I think I kind of (laughs) took, I sort of got lucky and, and really went crazy on Twin Peaks, especially with my book. 
at a time when there really wasn't that much energy or attention being paid to Twin Peaks. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing actually about your book, which I really want to come to, is the timing of it and um, what a labor of love that must have been. So, because you hadn't written a book before, right? No, I had just was doing a blog um, where I would go find Twin Peaks filming locations <laughs> or, you right. know, just kind of write sort of Tumblr, Tumblr-ish posts um, about the show. And I started talking to people who worked on the show and it really just kind of snowballed from a blog into a book. Right, okay. And so were you kind of surprised by your own passion, the way that it seems to be you writing almost for yourself in the way that you're doing for a blog and these sorts of communities and the conversations around it with other people? Was that of secondary importance to you actually doing the writing itself? Gosh, I don't know. That, that's a really tough question to ask. I mean, I, I do think I did it for my own entertainment at first. But then, like, I remember being like a year into the book and being like, okay, I have to make something that the most hardcore fan can enjoy, but also not the most hardcore fan. I have to make this accessible to someone who is interested in Twin Peaks, but it may not necessarily, you know, rule their life. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was fun to find that balance. I think I struck that balance. Um, so yeah, I, I think it was a really wonderful labor of love that I, I think brought out some of my best uh, qualities. <laughs> right. Okay. So was this? So it kind of graduated from a blog to a book. But what, at what point did it start becoming like a published or thing? What, what, at what point did you get a publisher on board? Oh gosh. Well, uh, so it's a pretty big step to take. <laughs> I published the book in America myself. I, I remember my friend Charles, who used to run in Twin Peaks, designed it. He's a he's a wonderful artistic eye, and then. I probably had 15 of my friends that love Twin Peaks read it to sort of give me their feedback. Um, it really wasn't professionally edited, <laughs> which <laughs> right. is probably frowned upon. So I just kind of went went for it. A project like that, you kind of had to come into it with a lot of naivete and just blind belief that you can do this. So, so the book came out, uh, what, three months before season three was announced? Yeah. Interesting timing. That's about right. Yeah. Yeah, so was that, were you glad for that sort of that sort of window where before the fandom kicked back into gear and it became a front page news again? I mean, I look back on that time and it really was like just this wild fantasy come true. I mean, <laughs> I had put everything I possibly had into that book and then it was just a, con a series of highs because once, you know, my book came out right around the time uh, The Missing Pieces were released... And yeah. I, I went out, I got to go out to the premiere and see those uh, for the first time, which was just incredible. Looking over and being able to see David Lynch uh, watching The Missing Pieces and seeing what, you know, made him kind of laugh and grin and, and stuff. So it was all surreal. And, and really, I never, I mean, I dreamed of Twin Peaks coming back, but I never would have put money on it. Um, it just, it felt like the ship had sailed. And I was just happy that... I was able to put my book out at a time when people were excited about Twin Peaks. It was really quite crazy when the announcement came through. Yeah, so were you suddenly regarded as an expert? Did you get interviewed about this news when it happened? Oh, yeah. Because you would have been... It, yeah. it was funny. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I remember like the... I don't think it was the Washington Post or... It was some significant newspaper basically sourced a whole article from my book. And so... <laughs> 
that was kind of cool. Really? Like I didn't really care that, you know, they basically reprinted a chapter of my book. It was like, wow, there's my name in this big newspaper. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the, the crowning moment for me though was, um, Grail Marcus wrote about my book. He actually gave me a few backhanded compliments, uh, on pitchfork.com. So yeah, right. Not everybody can say that, so that's that's pretty cool. Gregor <laughs> <laughs> Marcus, oh my god, that's mad. <laughs> so that must have been like a, a really intense time. So did you immediately continue your role as sort of an authoritative voice about Twin Peaks into production? Were you following what was happening with the uh, pre-production and production of season three? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was easy to get caught up in the excitement because a lot of people assumed that I knew more than I did about whatever was happening. And the production was so secretive. I think it made everybody following it all the more desperate to find out what was going on. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. 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 It's so thrill. <laughs> I would have friends calling me or texting me saying, Hey, this is what I found out. And then I would have, you know, people, just strangers come out of the, uh, the woods of the internet, uh, telling me tips and all this stuff. So it it was it sort of felt like I was in the middle of that storm, so to speak. There were certain days I would just get a deluge of text from people and be like, "Oh my God, I just saw so and so filming a scene. <laughs> what do you think they're doing?" Um, so yeah, I did follow it pretty closely. Right, but did you actually volunteer to be this nexus of all this information, or did you kind of fall into it accidentally? Um, I'd say it was kind of a boat, kind of both. I enjoyed <laughs> finding out about what was whatever was happening but it was overwhelming so to speak like you know sometimes i did just want to unplug from it and be like i don't care like i need a break <laughs> right and were you in nashville during all this uh yes right and did you actually travel to the to the locations and see any production not during filming i i mean looking back on all this i wish i had but nothing was for sure i mean I had friends that went up to Washington for a week and they ended up filming at the, uh, the sheriff's station all week and they didn't see anything. So I, I think I just, uh, didn't want to spend all that money for something that wasn't, <laughs> wasn't very much a sure thing. Right. Okay. Because during 2016, uh, Twin Peaks festival, there, this, that kind of came at a really interesting point where you were doing the location tours uh, or co-doing them, I, I believe, um, yep. doing some of them. Um, and you seem to have all this information. Everyone was like, if you want spoilers for season three, you could talk to a bunch of different people at the festival. And so I know some friends wanted to know more than other friends and all this sort of stuff. So it was really like a, almost like a choose-your-own-adventure sort of situation where you could know as much as you wanted to. And I guess a lot of people were like, I want to know what Lynch and Frost want me to know, which is nothing, Yeah, essentially. Or Absolutely. Yeah. I, I had friends that were just hell bent on finding out every single possible thing. And then my friend, Scott Ryan of the blue rose magazine, he didn't want to know anything going into it. So it's funny thinking back on all this because, you know, it's, I was able to go into the show with a certain expectation of things that I knew were going to happen. But of course, you know, twin peak season three is what it is. I mean, I'm still not quite certain what it is. So it was strange to go into it with that information and be proven wrong uh, <laughs> right. with your expectations. Yes. Okay. Yeah. With with regard to those expectations between, you know, production and broadcast, 
there was still a lot of conversations going around about what people were expecting and who, which actors had been were on that, who were on the list, and yeah. all this sorts of stuff. Like you know, people were thinking Trent Reznor was going to be an actor mm-hmm. for quite a while. I think because his name was part of the two hundred plus cast list. Um, so how much of that do you think actually impacted what you felt when when the when the first episode aired? Because it's a hell of a lot more information than almost anybody else is bringing to season three. Yeah, I, th- that's tough to answer. I, I mean, I think before the show came back, I was more interested in just kind of figuring out what the plot was. I remember Mark Frost did an interview where he said there will be a a very clear mystery. There will be tributaries, but, you know, the story's going to follow a path. And I was, so I was kind of really curious to know what that path was and perhaps prepare for it. Me, personally speaking, I'm not so certain I saw that path. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. Looking back on it, I, I kind of feel like it was a fool's errand to try to figure out what was going to happen uh, in season mm, three. Okay. So, so yeah, it, it, I, I look back and I'm like, you know what? I, I, I sort of wish I had gone into it with fewer expectations, but I, I don't think my final current opinion of the season would be very different. So going in, is it correct to say you were aware of a few set pieces, like you knew that certain events had been reported through the fandom, like people had watched certain scenes be filmed and so they knew that there was going to be Nadine walking down a street (laughs) with an eye patch or something like that. There was certain things people had seen, right? So Yeah. Well, I I think the biggest one that really threw me was the the Palmer House scene, the very last scene of season three. TMZ spoiled that almost two years before it ever aired and... I remember seeing that and being blown away at the visual, like, oh my God, Dale Cooper and uh, Laura Palmer are at the Palmer house after all this time. What in the, what in the world could be happening? Um, You know, that was a stunning sight and it's weird. I I never would have dreamed that would be the final scene. Something like that can really mess with your expectations when you know something and it ends up being the absolute end of it. So, yeah, there's some weird right. psychologies going on. <laughs> right. Were there any other things that stood out? Like, did you... Because I, I think some people knew about there being a car accident at a junction. Um, yeah. There's a few other things I, I know people were expecting to see. There, yeah, the, when the truck runs over to the kid was a big deal. And then um, I remember hearing that kids find a body in the woods, and I think that was the... Um, oh, yeah, the kindergarten teacher. Yes, was. And so I kind of thought that would be the big mystery. You know, another woman has been killed and who is it? But of course, mm. that would have been too easy. So because there was that comment from Frost and it kind of piqued your interest and other people's interest, I think, as well, expecting there to be a sort of a, like a body wrap in plastics murder mystery similar to the first two times. Do you think that that was actually the intention at the time? Like, do you think Frost was honestly thought that what he had written, what he was expecting, was this particular more nar- like linear narrative, and that got changed during production. I, no, I think going back and sort of looking at what he said after the season aired, I think he was kind of alluding to Dale Cooper's journey back to Twin Peaks. But for me, I, <laughs> there were great Dougie moments. I, I liked some of it, um, but I, I think. In my opinion, I mean, this is just for my personal taste. There was just way too much of that. Um, yeah, I think right. two or three or four episodes would have been fine, but 
when you you get down to three and four hours left, it's like, okay, where is this going? <laughs> mm. um, okay, but but you are so familiar with Twin Peaks and that storytelling style that you, did did you feel your your trust was being abused or misplaced perhaps by the storytellers? I, I would say yes, and I say that because I did a podcast each week uh, to follow. The episodes, and I remember something I kept saying to everybody is, I trust Lynch and Frost that this is going somewhere compelling and worthy and wonderful. And me, personally speaking, I feel like I was wrong. Um, yeah, the last two right. hours really sort of sunk my feelings about season three. I think at the end of 16, I was very excited. I mean, I was just jumping off my couch, screaming, oh my God, that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> But then the the next two episodes, I don't know. It, I it was tough. I, I remember after the first time I saw part seventeen, I turned over to my wife and I was like, "I don't like this." <laughs> right? Really? Yeah. That was like so, so the the replaying of the first scenes from episode one. Sorry, from the pilot. There are many parts of seventeen that I take issue with. I, I think. I'm I'm trying to go back in my brain and and see where the rails went off for me. I felt like Mr. C, I felt like his whole mission, his whole modus operandi went nowhere. I, I think Yeah, okay. I, I loved every scene with Mr. C up until then and then it was like, wait a minute. I thought this was like this cunning mastermind and I don't really think he has any idea what he's doing. <laughs> Mm. So, right. so there was that. I, I, Bob as the in the black ball getting destroyed by a green glove, just not. That's not my Twin Peaks. Yeah. Okay. And then and then sort of I kind of call it the Back to the Future Part Two stuff where Dale goes back in time. Like mm. I just when that was happening, I was just I was like the giant saying like no. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so yeah. And from there it just, Oh, I don't know, man. My thoughts and feelings are very complex about it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what I think is so fascinating. And why I wanted to get you on the podcast for ages is because you have such a fascinating trajectory to go from this long personal passion to being so you know, involved in it that you were writing a book and you were transcribing hours and hours and hours of interviews with all these different people. You published a book, then you become this fa- this voice for it and you become this face on the Twin Peaks festival circuit. And it's then to have this sort of reaction, I find <laughs> so interesting because you, you know, you more than anybody, more than most people are familiar with this sort, sort of style. And I would have expected you to be happy with this in the state of not knowing or just going with David Lynch and saying, okay, he wants to take the face off Sarah Palmer and have this sort of his artwork come out, you know. These sorts of more signature moves of his. Well, a lot of people probably will want to scream at me and shake me for saying this, but doing doing my book sort of showed me that there were a lot of wonderful voices in the mix of the original Twin Peaks. You know, writers and directors would come in and pretty much have autonomy to do an episode the way they want to do it, and then David Lynch would come in and turn it on its head. And I kind of missed that. I, I missed the dialogue. You know, I, I I didn't want this a, a repeat of what came before, but I, I think I wanted a story, and I wanted a protagonist and an antagonist, and they have things they want to achieve. Um, you know, <laughs> that's kind of what I was mm. hoping for and what I wanted. I mean, yes, there was a lot of great mood, but I just didn't feel 
a trajectory that was taking me anywhere interesting by by the end of eighteen right. hours. Okay, and do you think that that's down to the story itself, or do you think that's more an issue of production? Like, were there things that, that that you think they wanted to happen that couldn't happen for whatever reason, like logistically, or if we're actors not available, or something like that? I mean, I, I share some of the criticisms about the special effects. I mean, I know that they were on a tight budget, but I don't really have a problem with that. I mean, I, I think there are plenty of cheesy, unbelievable moments in the first two seasons. That have, yeah, that have endeared yeah, a digital owl comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have endeared themselves over time, but I don't really have a, a serious problem with that. I mean, I thought the show looked wonderful. I, I mean, the cinematography, the lighting, the costumes, everything felt genuine to that world. But for me, a lot of it just comes back to the story. And for me, <laughs> there wasn't one. I mean, I, I remember tr- uh, trying to explain to a friend who hadn't seen any of the seasons so far. And I, I think it was like the night episode nine aired and I tried to explain what had happened. And I was like, they were looking at me strangely. And I was like, <laughs> I'm, it's like, I can't explain this. I don't really know what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cause you definitely can do that with the first two seasons. You can point to events and people and yeah. I mean, you can have, you have some expectations. Yeah. But like there was an extreme high when it came back. I mean, I remember that first night watching four hours of Twin Peaks. I mean, it was it was emotional. I, I remember the uh, the Rancho Rosa logo flickered, and like t- like I started like doing like the happy laugh that Laura does at the end of Firewalk with Me, <laughs> and it turned into tears. I, I was so happy to have the show back, and that's a memory I'll hold on to. Absolutely. No, I, yeah, I got interviewed on radio here about the return and I was just like saying, oh yeah, I could just cry. It was all I could do with like the first 10 minutes. And then they were just like laughing. Like, you know, <laughs> it was like, yeah, I guess it sounds completely ludicrous. Like it's a TV show. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of definitely see a lot of what you're saying. What did you point, think of part eight? Was that, did that work for you to suddenly be taken out of that time and place that we were so familiar with? Yeah. <laughs> I remember the night part eight aired. We got to the end of it and like I looked at my wife and she kind of looked at me like, what did we just see? And I had complaints at first because I really just wanted more of whatever we were getting. I wanted the story to progress. I wanted to be, I just wanted to understand more. And then that part eight happened and it kind of felt like a... a diversion <laughs> from anything. Right, yeah, yeah. I, I mean... If you take part eight on its own, I, I think it's wonderful. I, I love the opening scene with Mr. C and Ray. I really dig that Nine Inch Nails performance. And the rest of the episode looks wonderful, and there's really cool stuff that only David Lynch could do. And for that, I like it and respect it. However, <laughs> I still don't like a lot of the implications of it uh, on the Twin Peaks universe at large. Having Bob materialize out of a nuclear blast is offensive to me. He is an ancient spirit that was here long before the 40s. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about the implications uh, of Sarah Palmer. I know that, I, I think she is supposed to be that girl at the end. Um, mm, yeah. And Grace Zabriskie was probably, I, I think, the strongest part of season three. I think everything she did was just 
blew me away. But, you know, trying to go back and think about the old Twin Peaks and imagine that she is the source of all this evil just doesn't add up to me. And that's not to say that Sarah Palmer doesn't look incredible smashing that picture of Laura at the end of 17. I I do love that part Mm. of 17. (laughs) I remember like the discussions that were going on on the podcasts that you were on and other, there were so many podcasts around that time. Some of those theories are actually better than what we saw, which is really unusual state to be in because there was a whole theory of like, what is the role of the mother who knows her daughter is being abused but is in an abusive relationship? I mean, that's a huge amount of trauma to be holding on to. And that seemed to be the yeah. sort of power that could drive something really, really dramatically satisfying and brutal and beautiful. I would have expected that to have occurred to to Lynch and Frost at some point and to at least express that sort of power in a different way than we saw. Yeah, I mean, I I have not gotten too deep into any of the the theories by the end of those 18 hours, I, I just, I didn't have any, I, I think the biggest disappointment for me was I just, I didn't have any questions or mysteries to really hold on to. It just, it left me feeling really empty at the end. <laughs> right, really? Yeah, okay. for all the expectation, um, so you didn't yeah. didn't feel like, you didn't feel part 18 was like the beginning of another season in the way that its tone was so different? I mean, not a season that I would want. I, I mean... My feelings about 18 are are more positive than 17. I, I think that there's a really wonderful, spooky, Twin Peaksy mood that Lynch captured. That's not to say that I really don't enjoy the vision of Dale and Diane fornicating. <laughs> like, it's just not, yeah. again, not right. my Twin Peaks. Um and that's a whole other thing. It's like I'm afraid to go back and watch the original because every time he says, Diane, I'm going to think about them in that Texas motel. And for me, it's not a good feeling. <laughs> so you don't have any particular urge to know what's happened to Audrey or any of the other th- the threads that were left unresolved? I-, I love the character of Audrey. I love Sherilyn Finn. But the Audrey scenes up until her final scene in the roadhouse and wherever she was in that white room were really just unfulfilling for me. They, they just kind of felt like a, a way to work Audrey in. Um, they, I feel like they didn't know what to do with her and they were like, but we have to have Audrey in or there's going to be a riot. Um, <laughs> mm, okay. So I would say that was a disappointment overall. I, I mean, I, I remember when the announcement happened, I assumed Audrey would be a top three or four character yeah. Somehow helping Cooper or saving Cooper. I don't know. Um, I thought she would have been in the FBI or something. So Yeah, that was a popular theory. To just kind of throw her in this elliptical purgatory just kind of felt cheap. Um, do you have any personal connections with the cast members from having interviewed them for your book that colored season three for you? Well, that's funny. I, I mean, I would say there's probably a small handful of cast and crew that I would say are my friends um, that I send Christmas cards to. <laughs> but mm-hmm. on one hand, I remember one time I said to one of them, I was like, I think I complained about part eight. And I was like, I'm not really sure I liked that. And uh, <laughs> and I we never really spoke much after that. I don't know if I rubbed them wrong um, right, yeah. or didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. So that was kind of strange. Um so, but no, I, I mean, I don't think it, it colored my opinion, um, being friends with any of them. 
Right, yeah. Because you're writing a new book now about China Beach, which is a show that used to, was running around the same time as Twin Peaks. Is there a fandom of China Beach for you to kind of <laughs> engage with? <laughs> Not really. I mean, I wouldn't say there's active grassroots fan sites. Um, I mean, there's a couple of Twitter pages, but it's an entirely different fan base. I think the show uh, China Beach uh, was not on DVD until a few years ago. So it's kind of like on the brink of just being forgotten. Uh, So it's a piece of art that I'm intent on grabbing with both hands and pulling back uh, before it goes Mm -hmm. over the edge. Um, It it had a lot of viewers back in the day. it ran for twice as long as Twin Peaks did. Uh, so people remember it, um, but it, it's it, it will be an uphill battle uh, <laughs> promoting it, whereas Twin Peaks was pretty easy. Was it a lot of lessons that you learned from doing uh, reflections and oral history that have helped you with this particular book? Oh, sure. I mean, I basically taught myself how to inter- interview people doing that book in my website. I enjoy putting a story art together. I used to record music on my own at home, like make albums and give them to my friends. And doing a book is kind of like making an album. You have to start somewhere and end somewhere and make the in-between as interesting as you possibly can. So not like Twin Peaks then? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, not season three. I don't know. I, I mean, a lot of people listening to this might be like, man, this guy, you know, he sure is talking a lot about something he doesn't like. But it, it's, uh, you know, I don't begrudge anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks. Um, although I, I always find dissenting opinions uh, just as interesting. I love hearing why people love season three. And I also love hearing why people don't like it. <laughs> Will you be glad to see a season four? Of Twin Peaks, if there is one, or a movie? I hope for everybody involved, they get to do that. I'll absolutely watch it the first night. I don't think I would chase down every spoiler available. Uh, <laughs> mm. But you never know. I mean, a lot of cool things could happen. I mean, Michael Ontkeen might come back as Harry Truman. Uh, you never know. I mean, maybe yeah. Chris Isaac would come back and be Chet Desmond. I would love to see what happened to him. So, yeah, I mean, sure, I, give me a season four. I would love it. And it would also wash the taste out of my mouth uh, from part 17. <laughs> yeah, right, which is my favorite part of the entire season three, I think. Serious? Um, okay, so what, what? why is part 17 your favorite? I just am curious. Um, well, because it was so beautifully entwined with that, those scenes from Fire Walk With Me and from the pilot that it seemed, even though I knew I was cheating myself and he was totally hooking me on this idea that you could rewrite the history and you could erase trauma and you could fix things the way that, you know, seemed to be the key driving force for Cooper. Mm -hmm. To be able to give that, just that glimpse of it and then have it totally taken away from you, even that glimpse I thought was so powerful. So having seen, like, the pilot, like, dozens and dozens and dozens of times and then to have that version of it was just like, yeah, it was like the most, it was like an amazing dream in a way. And even though you knew it wasn't going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, looking at it, you can say maybe Lynch is saying you can't go home. And if you literally mess with the past as we are right now, you can ruin things. But to me, it, it just it, I, I don't think he's saying that. But if he is, I think it's lame. It's like, well, then why do the show again in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, no, well, yeah, I mean, that was a key thing. Yeah. Nostalgia was one of the main themes. And that just seemed like a really bold way of engaging with it. Yeah, I, I mean, everybody has their own definition of nostalgia and 
what nostalgia is. And I think if you're going to do Twin Peaks, you have to incorporate some of the things you had or else what is it? I mean, this was a in the business of a remake. So I think you do have to play a little bit of ball with people that are coming in with expectations. You don't have to do, you know, a campy soap opera in a four by three frame. Um, mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I do think you do have to respect your audience. And I, I, I don't think the entire season was <laughs> disrespecting your audience. I, I am really happy that Lynch and Frost had the absolute freedom to do whatever they wanted. I mean, I don't think they had any excuses except for maybe, you know, a smaller budget than they had wished. But, you know, I think it's awesome that those two guys got to do that. And I really do think you have to have those two. I mean, David Lynch is the walking, talking billboard of Twin Peaks. But Mark Frost, I think, is just as important to every bit of success uh, of that show. And I, I think that's lost on a lot of people. Yeah, that's the key thing, um, I think, as well, because there is a lot of stuff that I think is frosty in, in season three, but it tends to get reinterpreted so vividly through mm-hmm. Lynch's vision that a lot of the time you it's easy just to go, Frost comes up with the ideas, Lynch renders them and throws out the ones he doesn't like and rewrites stuff on the set if he wants to, you know, use that extra over there as, to do this certain thing, you know. Yeah. Which, whereas I don't know how accurate that really is, and it's hard to find someone who can break it down in a way that I think would be more truthful. Right. Yeah, but I uh, know because also like the way Frost has been very quiet since season three finished. I think is interesting. The fact that Lynch is keeping the books, his books, very very separate from his vision, like <laughs> Lynch's own vision for the show. You know, yeah. <laughs> to the point of that, that's one thing that not acknowledged and they exist. That's probably another one of my big complaints about just Twin Peaks coming back. I, I really would have liked a a united front, a united vision. It, for me, it doesn't really help when I read a book and then David Lynch is like, well, that's not my Twin Peaks. I've never even read that. Um, it yeah, would have been nice yeah. to him for him to be like, oh, yes, this this book will enhance uh, season three in every single way. So, yeah, I found that a little grating, uh, to be honest. Yeah, and it's also interesting looking back at around the time that your book came out, there was the talk of, you know, after the season three was announced and it was announced shortly after that, that, that there would be The Secret History of Twin Peaks, which was yeah. originally announced to bridge 1993 to 2017. But then that was, Frost, you know, said when I interviewed him, that was a mistake in the way it was marketed. It was never meant to be like that, which I'm not entirely convinced by. I think maybe that was <laughs> the original plan. And then he was like, no, actually, I want to do this and this and this. And I love writing about the birth of Scientology and I love writing about Lewis and Clark and I'm going to put all this other stuff in there too. You know, I, I really like the book, but yeah, it was, it was a very, it seemed to be more separate from the series as time went on. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. And then, you know, after the fact Lynch said that, you know, that's Mark's book. It's not, I haven't read it. So it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I, yeah. I'm wondering how Mark feels about that, but maybe we'll never know. Who knows? So, have you rewatched season three? The only thing I've seen was a uh, George Griffith reposted a video on Facebook of um, the Mister C diner scene where he says, "I don't need anything, Ray. <laughs> I want." Oh yeah, and I, that, I think that might be my favorite scene of of all of season three. That that gave me the shivers up my spine. It's a good one. Yeah. Okay. So there is a rewatchability to seasons one and two that is undeniable. I think, but. Maybe oh, less yeah. so with season three? I, I mean, 
I have, the problem is I've rewatched season one and season two so many freaking times. Um, I mean, I love, I love that like, you know, a child, but, um, like one of my own kids, but I, I I'm not certain I could watch it again. It, I, <laughs> mm, okay. But China beach, does that have a rewatchability? You know, China beach, uh, it, it's about 60 episodes and it is, you know, it's, it, it's a very slow paced show. There's a lot of it, it works in silences. Um, it's a show about war, but you know there's music, and then it, it, to me it uh, it was every bit as innovative as Twin Peaks for television that was made in the eighties, late eighties, early nineties. Um, I, I really envy audiences who got to watch China Beach lead into Twin Peaks on Saturday nights because they were both in the middle of seasons that are just completely stunning pieces of work that I can't believe made it onto network television at the time. Well, I'm very keen to find out more about that story because I do remember it screening like in the 90s. Okay, cool. But also, and, I, and plus, I, you know, I was in a band called China Beach, so I've got no excuse to not <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think the soundtrack was actually, it actually charted on the, uh, the billboard there whenever it yeah, came out. Yeah, in Australia. Yeah, I think it did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're not wrong. You've done your research. Yeah, I've written a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the book. Cool. Well, thanks again, Brad. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It was it, it's uh, it's wonderful and strange to uh, to have a deep <laughs> to go back there a again. deep dive in Twin Peaks after a year away from it for sure. And that was my conversation with Brad Dukes, author of Reflections and Oral History of Twin Peaks, and a forthcoming book about the TV series China Beach. I'm not sure when the next episode will come out, but I think it will involve an announcement of some sort. I've got some information that I am not able to share at the moment, but it does lead me to believe that there will be another episode within the next few months. You can find Brad Dukes on Twitter at Twin Peaks Book. You can find me and the podcast at TP Season 3. Thank you very much for listening through to the end and hopefully podcast to you again soon. Bye for now. (laughs) 